about death is uncomfortable. We think if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. Sadly, this isn't true. It's the only thing in life that we can be certain about. And because we don't talk about it, often we don't know what to do when we experience the death of a loved one. My name is Fiona Garvin and this is Deadly Serious Conversations. I'll be talking to a range of people who will share their knowledge and experience so we can learn how to make dying part of living. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to chat with Zenith Virago. For those like myself who work in this space, Zenith's name is synonymous with leading the way in informing and educating communities to demystify misconceptions and beliefs around death, dying and funerals. Zenith is the co-author of a book called The Intimacy of Death and Dying, She refers to herself as a death walker, that is someone who walks alongside those who are dying. She brings over 25 years experience of working with families to support them and their loved ones to reclaim the dying process. Zenith is the subject of a beautiful documentary called Zen and the Art of Dying. She is an incredible trainer and her work is admired all around the world. Conversations like this one really allow us to bring the topic of death to the fore and inform people of the choices that they may have so that we can all be aware that those choices available can empower us to have the capacity to do death better. I feel incredibly humbled to have had this opportunity to speak with Zenith on the podcast and I hope you find this conversation insightful. Good morning, Zenith, and thank you so much for having a chat with me this morning. It's an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast today. So you describe yourself as a death walker. So what does it mean to be a death walker and how did you find yourself walking alongside death? The term a death walker for me is twofold. So one is that everyone is a death walker. We're all walking towards our own deaths, I think, the best we can, living our lives. But as we all know, death is omnipresent and it can come at any time. So I just let it walk alongside me whilst I'm walking along in my life. But then I I just never really warmed to the term midwife to the dying or death doula it just has never sung to me so I prefer to say that I'm accompanying people who are dying I'm walking that journey with them with either the dying person or the bereaved and I didn't really go looking for it death offered itself to me when a friend of mine died I was working in law And we decided that we wanted to do it all ourselves. So I found out how to do that. And we took care of her body. We built a coffin. We drove her. We did the paperwork. We did the ceremony. We pushed her into the cremator. We'd had a vigil as well. And it was so incredibly satisfying and fulfilling and meaningful. And then other people just came to me and said, can you help us? We want to do it like that. Mm. 
So it wasn't something I was looking at doing, unlike many people now who are really pulled in that direction because they feel they have a calling or a vocation. But I think it's a different, just like life, death is a different journey for everyone. Yeah. And how long ago, Zenith, was that? It was 25, 26 years ago. The funeral was on my 37th birthday. It was a, you know, it was an incredible day and a massive, you know, rite of passage and a massive transition into a, a much deeper life for me. Lovely. And Zenith, a lot of your work involves sitting alongside people who may be dying or by their bedside um, while they're, they're very ill and dying. What is it to die well? I think it's very different for different people. So, but in a nutshell, I would probably say it would be to be prepared on an emotional level and an intellectual level, not to be afraid, not to be uh, in denial, the incredibly popular term, but and or refuse to accept that that's a situation, to be as pain-free as possible on a physical level, to be able to feel that you, you had lived a good life, whatever that might look like for you, that you'd been of benefit to either your immediate group of people or a bigger community or global level, but also to have open and clear communication with people, to be able to communicate to them how you feel or what's, you know, to have those discussions with people so that they feel that they're they've also been able to say what they want to say and and things are just journeying in a gentle and supportive way. But sometimes that's not the case. People are unable to speak. They're unable to express their feelings or their concerns. Uh, and sometimes families won't let that person die. They won't let them have the right to die in a discussion, oh, no, you'll be fine. No, no, you're not dying. And uh, I hear those stories often. They're usually not the people that I'm working with, but we all know that, you know, death is a challenge for some people. Yeah, yeah. And so it sounds like it's trying to find that sense of peace, you know, bringing peace into your life. And, and you mentioned there about not being afraid. How do you prepare yourself or how can you try not to be afraid? Fear must be a big part of it, I imagine. I th- again, I, I feel it's one of those things that we'll never know until it's happening to us. So we can speculate how it might be or how we might feel but we might just get two minutes on the side of the road, you know, in a car accident, or we could be on a plane that is about to crash, any any situation. So I think the more we live our lives in an open and communicative way and a tidy way, whatever that looks like, but at, that we don't have loose ends all over the place. We, ha- we don't spend years planning to do something that we never do when it involves something very simple close by rather than some trip that we've always wanted to take. And I think often speaking to people that we love, telling them that we love them, but just in everyday communication, I find that 
you know, I'm always expressing exactly how I feel in any given moment so that if I walk around the corner and I die, then I'm, I haven't, I'm not going to lay there regretting something. I think not to have regrets is a great way to die. You know, and I, I certainly feel like that. And if, and you can check in every night before you go to sleep. You can make that a daily practice. And also sleep is a great practice for dying because we, we enter into it not knowing whether we're going to wake up or not. But we, we usually surrender ourselves to the bed and to our sleep at the end of an exhausted full day. And so I think that's a good practice is to just say, if I die tonight in my sleep, is that okay? And then pay attention to what arises. Yeah. And having no regrets is a great way to live as well. Mm, totally. Yeah. So Zenith, being present with someone dying is a very humbling experience. And those conversations that you might have by someone's bedside, although they can be tough, I know for me in, in that time, there are some of the most meaningful conversations that I've ever had um, and you don't realize until afterwards how beautiful those are. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly humbling experience to sit with someone as they're dying and I'm sure you find that all the time. Yeah, and just to see that everyone is different and there is no the same way it goes. It's an equation depending on who that person is, how they've lived their life, what they're dying from. I mean, some people are suffering. Some people have small children that they're leaving behind that they won't see grow into adulthood. And, you know, it can be very confronting and very sad for people, very different if you're at the end of a long life and your body is aging and, you know, your time has come, whatever that might look like. But, yeah, but I do think that it's one of the great gifts we can give to people that love us is to be to be prepared for any possibility the best we can, and then we can deal with the real situation when it arises, but at least we've got something to sustain us into that journey. Yeah. Zenith, over the years here in Australia, we've really lost that tradition of family looking after their loved ones after their death. And we no longer believe that we're qualified to do this at home. In fact, most people don't even realize that you can do this um, and that it used to be the norm. So it's now become that death is almost a bit of a mystery and we're very in very unfamiliar territory. And we assume that we need the professionals to help us to take care of all of that. Yeah, many people don't realize that they can actually look after their loved ones at home following their death with minimal assistance from the funeral director. So what are some of the steps involved that you can do from death to perhaps the ceremony from a family's point of view? I know you do this a lot. I am helping families. So. Yeah, so I think the thing to see it is as a journey of steps and each step takes you to the next one. So it's a bit like walking as we walk towards something. So Usually if families have been caring for their person who's been dying either at home or in hospital, then at that moment of death, there's a chance to just sort of be with what is happening and 
to take the to to appreciate that that moment that they've been either dreading or expecting or looking forward to has arisen and to just be with that. And then any time after, you know, sort of an hour, half an hour, an hour, whenever people are ready, then it's great to start to keep the body cool because it's starting to deteriorate. But it's really continual care for families that have already been caring for that person. So often, you you know, you would lay the body flat. You would um, make it comfortable. Some people are washing and dressing. Some people are just laying someone out. Sometimes people are putting them on a cold plate because they're going to keep them for longer than 24 hours. In New South Wales, you can keep a body for up to five days. Five days is actually quite a long time to keep someone at home and care for their body. But it doesn't really, it's not like you see it in the movies or people who are concerned. You know, generally if someone hasn't eaten or drunk anything for days before their death, there's not much to come out. And so, but it also depends of uh, what disease they've been dying from. That, that may, but the community nurses, the palliative care nurses will as- explain to you what is going to happen and what's likely to happen. They'll explain to you that rigor mortis comes and goes. And for a lot of people, it's really comforting. And over and over again, people say when they're dealing with just the dead body of that person, they can see that it is not their person anymore. It's the, the, it's the aspect of them that they are most familiar with, which is their physical casing. But the majority of people believe that something leaves the body when, when someone dies, spirit, soul, essence, consciousness. And it's that belief that really sustains people in that time. And, and children see it really quickly. They'll come to a body and they'll say, oh, that's not so-and-so. They're not there because they can see that it's empty, that the life force is gone, but also some of the quality of what made that person isn't there anymore. And it's fascinating to be with children when they say that because they're, they're not so complicated with emotions that we are an attachment. And so it's really, but then it becomes really about keeping the body cold, the organs, so they don't deteriorate. But it's very simple. You do not need a funeral director, but of course you must do the paperwork. And so there are a few little things that must be done. They must be done properly. And so from a legal point of view, bringing in the assistance of a funeral director to help with that, I imagine it's a lot easier than doing it yourself. Or can you even do it yourself? You can do it all yourself. And that's what I've been doing for many families for many years, where they don't want to get, they want to primarily do it themselves. They want the conveyance of their person. They want to build their own coffin, drive it in their own car. Uh, create the ceremony themselves, all those things that we did 25 years ago. And that that's all possible. So, but the paperwork to get the body certified as dead 
and then to be able to put it into the ground, into a grave or into the cremator is very simple. It's five forms, but it must be completed accurately. And you, for cremation, you just need to have one of the forms witnessed by JP. That's all. But otherwise, families can fill them all in and the necessary doctors. But if it's a, if it's a sudden death, then, of course, people are much more in shock. Their, their emotions can be overwhelming. And so often they can still do it when the body is ready to be released, but often they will do it in conjunction with a funeral director so that they can, they're not carrying the whole burden of that task because they are better off dealing with their emotions and the shock and spending time with that person rather than filling in paperwork. That's yeah. really. And I know here in Melbourne, we certainly have a few funeral directors who will just take care of the paperwork and let the family do whatever else they want to do. So there's certainly funeral directors that will support that if the family want to. Sure. But I think one of the most important things for families or anybody is to understand that the funeral industry is a service industry. They are there to give you a service. And so you have to play your part in that. And you are much better to find out what they have to offer and to negotiate with them the parts that you might want to do if you do that when you are not affected by a deep emotional loss. So to go to ring in advance, have those conversations, check out what they offer, ask them how much they charge. Don't don't be coy about the finances because otherwise you can get a really sh big shock when you get that bill at the end of it. And inquire what you know if you can build your own coffin, if you know what parts you can bring to it rather than just take their service without any question. Yeah. 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 And so I know in Byron Bay, where the area that you live in, families have the benefit of your expertise and experience to help them guide them through that. But this is possible anywhere in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Each state, there are some technicalities, but it's absolutely possible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Zenith, having heard you spoke before, I know that you really acknowledge the importance of a ceremony and a funeral ceremony can look different from one family to the next. But in your opinion, what makes a good funeral? I think it I think for any ceremony, the, the first starting point is to ask what purposes do we want that ceremony to serve? And then you, when you, you come up with those answers and then you tailor the ceremony to meet those needs. And generally it has a beginning, a middle and an end. They're not equal lengths. But like any good film, any good book, any good story, it generally has a beginning, a middle and an end. But it also shouldn't grind the families into a more distressed place. It's really great to appreciate the emotional journey that the celebrant is taking those people on. And as you know, because you've just done the ceremony masterclass with me, that 
it's, you know, it's sort of so simple, but it's so beneficial to understand that emotional journey and how it works for people and why things work in different places. But it's really the beginning of the healing journey. And when a celebrant consults with a family or with the dying person, it's really about making that ceremony meet the needs that the family require. And sometimes they don't even know what they are. But most people will say, we don't want it to be morbid. We want to celebrate their life. But really, they also want to honor their connection and their relationship to that person. They want to uh, acknowledge the way they died, if that was shocking or if it was comfortable at home. And it's really about also letting the body go, the physical body go, so that it's marking that transition. When they walk back into their lives, that group of people gather maybe for the last time, and then they walk back into their lives without that person physically in them. And so it's a sort of individual and a collective experience. And the celebrant needs to be offer that up and guide people through it, but not control it. Yeah. And the other thing to remember is as well that the celebrant doesn't have to be a professional celebrant. It could be a family member as well. Mm, that's right. Yeah. If you wanted the family to lead it. That's right. And sometimes people will... I think sometimes the people make a mistake uh, when they say we want an MC. Some ceremonies do just need an MC, and that's fine. But an MC is not the same as a celebrant who, and anybody can do it, but that person really needs to have a little bit of an understanding about people's emotional needs and ceremony itself. Whereas an MC, is m more practical and pragmatic and it's not always the best outcome because even though we're all adults we all know death is a part of our life we all know people are sad when someone dies but each death offers other things to the people that are there and are concerned about that person it's great not to miss that moment to offer guidance and wisdom especially if they're young people there and that's the first death they're experiencing and of course music is the master manipulator so some ceremonies will just be uh, a series of music that takes people on that journey but but it's great it's great to know that it can completely transform that experience especially when the death is shocking yeah yeah and, you know, you touched on it a little bit earlier, Zenith, about children and their experience. You know, when it comes to dealing with children around death and dying, we often want to protect our children from pain and any sort of sadness. Have you any advice on involving children and your experience of children being involved in funerals and in, and in this space? Yeah, so my experience of children over 25 years here is, and elsewhere, but it, they've, it's a great place to learn anything on the North Coast, um, and is that they're very capable 
And we should always treat them with respect and with honesty. And just like they're learning about lots of other things that life has to offer, they're also learning that death comes. And if they're sort of lucky, it will come to their grandparents who are elderly and people think that's the natural order of things. But often now it will happen to someone young, either by an accident or misadventure. It will happen to people because they have a disease and they will die from that disease. So, but children, I just had this yesterday, I gave a public talk and a woman was saying that, you know, should we let the children see the body? You sh is the answer is if the children want to, but of course you wouldn't drag them there screaming. And in the past, I mean, you would know because you're Irish, that sometimes those kids had to kiss that body which is probably not the best for the children unless they're super keen to do that. But to just see someone, they can see what death is, just like when their dog dies and people have a whole moment where the dog and they explain that it stopped breathing for whatever reason and they bury the dog in the garden and they're having a continual respectful conversation about that experience with children. But for some reason, often when it comes to humans, we think that children aren't ready for that. But I would say that is, you know, a complete misservice to the children because what they'll sense is everyone being affected by that experience, but no one's telling them what's happening. And one of the things we do know about children is that they are very egocentric. So they will think it's about them. And what we don't want is them to think that anything is their fault. And especially if it's a parent and that parent is dying and they're trying to say, oh, you know, if I be a good girl, if I be a good boy, please don't let mummy die. And then, of course, mummy dies because she has a disease. And, um, and, and then they feel that they weren't good enough. And that, but they may not tell anybody that, you know, that's just their quiet little thing. And, um, you know, the other thing is about language. So often people will say, oh, they went to sleep and didn't wake up. And so kids then become terrified about going to sleep at night. And I've just had this conversation three times in, in the last week about that that term of phrase or that we lost someone, you know, oh, you lost your mum. It's not helpful to children. It's confusing. So even though adults are saying those words because they're softer, it's actually much better to have the use of really clear words so that kids can explore that and understand what that actually means hmm. and they're not confused or misled yeah, I know certainly the children that I've come across, you know, they're very in the now. And I remember a little, maybe three or four year old, I was at the front talking about her pa and, and she shouts out, why is she talking about my pa, you know, and just it, it obviously was very confusing to her to what was going on, but just giving them a heads up and preparing them as well as best we can. Yeah, to just, just tell them the truth about what's happening. Obviously, you would do that age according, but, you know, because there's, there's sensing it. Anyway, kids aren't 
they're not stupid. In fact, they're hypersensitive to what's going on because their survival depends on it. And, you know, they'll be the first to rush in for a quick cuddle, but they are very present. They're very in the now. So they can be completely sad. And then they'll say, can I go and have a sleepover? Can I go out to play? And that makes people cry because the kids are fine. But, you know, and and if we drag them down with our despair, then of course they'll feel like that because they're trying to fit in and they, you know, they, but kids need to be playing. They need to be alive. They need to be in the joy of it. And we can learn a lot from children and their ways of dealing with it. It's okay to feel okay. Yeah. So Zenith, is there anything that you would say to a family who are walking alongside death at the moment? You know, what would your advice be, if anything, anyone who's got someone dying? Well, I think to just be with them in the best way you can. But one of the other things is it can be exhausting, caring emotionally and physically, caring for someone who's dying. And you never know how long that's going to go on for all of that. Sometimes it's too quick, sometimes it's too fast, um, sometimes it's too slow and it goes on forever. But I, I think one of the best things to do is sort of a bit, I, I equate it to when I'm swimming across the bay in Byron where I'm in the ocean, I'm present to what's below me in the ocean, I'm present to the feel, but I, every now and again I have to come up and look where I'm going to make sure I'm on track. And I think it's very useful to, to look ahead to the next step, but keep staying where you are. So, you know, put some, put some things into place so you're prepared for the next step rather than be blinkered and think, oh, we'll deal with that when it comes. But then not be too – some families are too far in the future and then they miss – uh, that precious time they have with the person. But the other thing is to, yeah, is to be able to say what you want to say and but also not to pressure that person because sometimes they're busy dying, it's confronting, they're going in in order to go out and they may be tired and they may be finding a really gentle place. So apart from communicating by words is, you know, gentle touch is just sitting in silence with that person. But to, to prepare yourselves for that loss, for that death, because you're going to have to live on and, and also organize a whole lot of things after they die. So a lot of people are so focused on the dying person and their needs they don't take care of their own needs and they're exhausted. And often when it's a partner or people are caring for a parent, well, more than occasionally, often, they will then get sick themselves because they have been neglecting their own care, their own well-being. They've taken on the stress and they've taken on the distress of the dying person or other relatives, and then often they will find that they're paying a price for that. So to, to really have a clear boundary about how much you have to give in that situation and not to merge with the dying person. Yeah. 
So I know you mentioned swimming there, Zenith, but what does it mean to you to feel alive? Well, I I spend a lot of my time now, especially as I've got older, in joy and wonder. And I spend, you know, I live at the beach. I, you know, I'm, I'm on my bicycle cycling to the beach. I've already played tennis. I've been for a swim. I've been to the dentist. I've had a visit from friends. Um, I've seen a brand new month old baby. Uh, and, and, you know, you forget when you, how incredible babies are when they're brand new, you know, so, so magical. So, I don't find it, I'm just alive all the time. I feel very grateful for my inner life, for my external life, for my community, for my family and friends. I get to dance a lot. I get to drink wine and eat good food. I I love company. And uh, I'll be very, you know, if I have two minutes on the side of the road before I die, I'll be looking back and thinking, wow, you know, that was a really great life. I, I, it's more than I could possibly have imagined. It's so rich, but so simple. Yeah. And so do you have to remind yourself or do you, are you conscious of the joy around you all the time? Is it something that you have to practice, like reminding yourself, how beautiful is this? No, I don't have to practice. I'm in a practice of it, of appreciation. But a few years ago, I did, uh, I've done different years on different things. So I did a year of appreciation. I did a year of gratitude. Uh, But then I found myself that I went sort of beyond gratitude. I just went into this place of joy and a bit like anything, the more you practice it, the better you get. And most of the time I'm in that joy. Occasionally something sideswipes me or I'm sad, but you know, when, and every day that I don't have a drama, every day that I don't have anything, you know, like the, the hot water system breaking or something like that. But I've just found learning to be neutral in situations where you never get too excited and you never get too upset uh, has been a great help. And then that quality of neutrality goes from from those. It, it just keeps increasing to a higher level. And so that neutrality for me has gradually become joy and wonder. And I, I feel very fortunate that, my life is that simple that I, I don't have too many hardships to bear and I'm in good health, I'm able-bodied, I have my mind, my emotional system, they all work pretty well. And it's, it's simple but rich. And it's good to be alive. It's great to be alive, and, but that I know that at the same time that's not the case for everyone. A lot of people have very difficult and challenging situations to deal with, either on the inside with their bodies or on the outside with their living arrangements or with their family or with employment, with housing. And, you know, so I don't want to sort of ignore the fact I live in a community where those realities are at play all the time. Yeah. So Zenith, the Natural Death Care Centre is your charity that you have in Byron Bay. So what is it that they do? Well, we 
when I first started that, we were a sort of beacon for people to find in a dark place. And it was very important for me that I worked from a place of integrity. It was never about money or kudos. It was about quietly just doing my thing. And we started as a not-for-profit um, association. So we have a management committee and I report to them every month and they support me when we're discussing things together. And, um, and if there's big decisions to make, they make those decisions in conjunction with me. So I like that, you know, that I'm, it, it's bigger than just me. And we decided a while ago, maybe eight, eight years ago, that the best use of me and the best use of our organisation was to do pre-need education, which is what we're doing. And at that point, there wasn't so much out there. There were other people globally, but now the whole death doula uh, industry has come into being and it's fantastic for people to to be able to find someone nearby to them to a, who's more familiar with death and dying and the process and can assist them if they're struggling or if they want to have someone to assist them. And so we just do that. I deliver as uh, a few work, different workshops. I tailor it to some organisations. But we want to set that information free. So we didn't want to accredit it. We didn't want to have it as a tick list. This is the way to do it. We wanted to offer a body of wisdom, a body of experience, a body of knowledge up for people to come along, receive that knowledge, question it, play around with it, then take it into their own lives and their own practices, their own professions, their own families, and create something that was right for them and right for the people that they work with. And we've now been teaching the Death Walker training and the masterclass for the last eight years, and I would say that we have succeeded in what we set out to do. And your class in particular. I mean, it was an amazing class, the, the, the alchemy and the magic. And because when you're very experienced and you're embodying what you're trying to teach and offer up, you, I have to dance with everyone in that room with their level of experience, their level of knowledge, their questioning, their disagreement with something. And, and honour that, but still offer it up and just trust that they will take that information, take that knowledge, take that experience and adapt it and it will grow. And so it's, you know, we are spreading out, we're rippling out so that people, in, there's someone in every community that holds that death knowledge, but they're also doing it for themselves, you know, and it's, it's a bit like first aid. You know, you go and do a first aid course and you think, oh, I hope I never have to use this, you know, CPR or anything. But if you do have to use any of those skills, like putting someone in a splint, doing the CPR, 
you're really glad you've got that knowledge and it allows you to be much more present and of service because you've got that little bit of knowledge rather than, oh, my God, I wished I paid attention. You know, I wished I'd done that first aid course. So it's a bit like last aid. Yes. <laughs> so you've got a body of knowledge that, so if you come across someone on the side of the road, you're more likely to be present and to be calm and do, be able to deal with that and offer something useful than if you hadn't None. contemplated or practiced something to do with being in, in the moment with death. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for everything that you do. And even particularly people like myself who work in the industry, it's great to be able to have your wisdom and experience and, and give us confidence. We're all in it together. And sometimes it just affirms for people what they've already learned, because we're all, it, it's not rocket science. And often I see that people are very capable very courageous but often they're holding themselves back because it's such a crucial profound time in people's lives and they don't want to either do the wrong thing or make it worse but if you're well-intentioned and you're mindful then you're generally you're going to make a contribution and you will probably know where you've offered something up and families say oh, thank you so much. You know, we couldn't have done it. They could have done it without you, but it's a better experience because you bring your courage, your familiarity, and but we're learning from each other. You learn a lot from every family that you work with and you take that on to the, it fills you up and you take that learning on into the next and the next. But this is information that everyone should have. We should all be prepared for our own death or for the death of people that we love. Yeah. Beautiful, Zenith. It's been so wonderful to listen to you this morning and chat to you. Um, have you got a cuppa this morning? Or are you? I know it's probably hot up and barren. It's, this is the tail end of my black straight coffee <laughs> that, um, because I, I don't drink milk. So... You can drink it hot or cold, and um, it's. I could just top it up. <laughs> cold coffee, wow, that's impressive. It's not my. It's not my preference, but sometimes <laughs> it, you know what it's like. Sometimes you're writing a funeral ceremony, or doing. So, you're so engrossed, and then you think, oh. Anyway, but it's like iced coffee. Iced coffee is a delicacy. Oh, <laughs> true. That's right. It's just missing the ice cream and the, and the milk. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Zenith. Conversations like this are so important. So it's been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you, Fiona. And really, you know, thanks to anyone who's making any contribution to, the, to, to assisting people to die well. And for a healthier bereavement. I mean, we're all in it together. We are. Thank you. 